0: Hello, and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at, at The Verge. I'm Liz Lapato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. Uh, and I, This is a little bit like
1: not quite science and not quite entertainment, and I have insisted on talking about it anyway because I am so fascinated. Uh-huh. Uh, Go on. It is, it is the saga of Ryan Lochte in Brazil.
0: I mean... Boys with bleached hair, like pretty boys with bleached hair, always get up to no good in Brazil. That's what we learned from Justin Bieber a couple <laughs> years ago. Um, but but run, run us through this story real quick and tell me exactly why it gives you such delight. Because you were like, we have to talk about Ryan Lochte. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> like,
1: this, is, this is an insight into my my brain. Okay, so I think it was Sunday, there is a headline that's like Ryan Lochte's mom says Lochte was robbed at gunpoint at the Olympics and then the IOC denied it and then there was some back and forth about whether or not the incident had taken place so I'm already interested because like I don't know it's just whenever there are contradictory stories there's like some like little like bat signal that goes off in the back of my head even right. if it's something that's not on my my beat like I bet we could dig here and find something real cool Uh huh. <laughs> um, unfortunately I was not in a position to dig so I let other journalists do it because they're, you know, better sourced than me and actually in Rio. <laughs> so what has been emerging is, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, this just, I, like, I don't know why I, this, like, delights me so much. There's a, there's a video clip that's now at the center of this particular controversy, because Lochte and three other swimmers, they are Jimmy Fegan, Feigen, F-E-I-G-E-N, Con, uh, Jack Conger and Gunnar Bents, uh, said that they had been robbed at gunpoint at a gas station and then the video uh, that surfaced from the gas station looks pretty unremarkable. And now the uh, the Rio police are saying that the athletes lied, and that in fact the men were involved in a fight at the gas station after one of them kicked a toilet door in. Uh huh. And that they invented the robbery to cover it up, which I totally buy because like Ryan Lochte definitely seems like the kind of person who would lie to his mom about
0: like some shenanigans he had gotten involved in. <laughs>
1: Because remember, the source on the
0: original story is his mother. Yeah. No, the he said, she said here is between Ryan Lochte and his mom.
1: And his mom went to the press like, my boy was assaulted. Oh, no one's done anything. And Ryan's like, oh, my God. and like he Right. He got out of there, man. Like, the other three athletes are, are, are in Brazil still. Conger and Benz were pulled off their plane by the Brazilian police. Feigen is still in Brazil. No one knows where he is. Lochte's back in the U.S. Like, he just, like, got out of there. And and so, you know, it's, like, this really remarkable thing to me where it's, like, the lesson here is that it is bad and tacky to lie to your mother,
0: okay? Yeah, especially like, when you're famous and your mom is very proud of her special boy for swimming so fast. Um, she will go to the press. <laughs> because, because the fact of the matter is that you could lie to your mother and create an international incident.
1: Because, like, you know that the Brazilian police were like, oh, my God. Because there were all of these concerns before the, the Olympics that this was going to be unsafe. And there are going to be robberies and things, and like they're like a scandal not on our watch, and then the whole thing unravels. So like, Wakti's sticking to his story for now. He's saying this really happened. Um, I'm curious to see where this goes, but like, just the absolute visceral glee. I like. I hope moms all over this fine nation use this as an example for their children. Listen, if you lie to me, the Brazilian police are going to get real
0: mad. Okay, you're going <laughs> so to have to go do a plane that. like right away. Um, <laughs> don't lie to your mom call your mom but don't lie to her yep well so i want to i want to talk about another uh another uh mom a cinematic mom in the form of amy adams uh there are two trailers that dropped this week for arrival which is uh the latest film from Denis villeneuve i'm gonna gonna, i I can't i can't pronounce it normal i I have to say that i have to say it like that uh those are the (laughs) <laughs> um, he is, of course, the director of um, Sicario, which came out last year. He also directed Prisoners, kind of a very dark thriller type of dude. And uh, now he's getting into sci-fi. And you know, I'm I I wouldn't say I love him as a filmmaker, but I'm I think he's interesting. And I think I cannot wait for him to do a story about aliens, especially a story about aliens where Amy Adams is not. She does not work for the government. With military she is a linguist and it is her mission to figure out a way to communicate with these aliens who have apparently dropped these giant bean-shaped spacecraft all over earth it's like independence day but with talking instead. oh it's like it's like independence day but like for international diplomacy yes yeah and the whole thing is like we don't want to accidentally piss them off by misunderstanding their language like, oh, God, like, bring it to me right now. I want it so bad. It's based off of a, a short story or a novella by uh, Ted Chang called The Story of Us. And apparently that has a lot of fans. The Story I'm, of Your Life. Sorry, story, <laughs> The Story of Your Life. The Story of Us. That is a romantic. Um, actually, I'm not sure. Uh, a- anyway, uh, The Story of Your Life. It has uh, some very fervent fans, our own Andrew Liptak, among them. Uh, and so I, I hear I hear it's promising. I also hear it doesn't really stick to the story that much, but who knows. Well, um, one of the
1: things that I discovered when we were talking about this, I, I briefly read up on the story, which I have not read itself, but it, it, it uh, deals with the Worfianism, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which is uh, an idea in linguistics that the structure of a language affects uh, its speaker's worldview. Hmm. Um it used to have a, a stronger claim that language determines thought, but that's the most accepted version is that it only influences thought. And so, you know, you, you it's um, work from Edward Sapir and Benjamin Lee Whorf that talked about the ways that grammatical differences can affect worldviews of people who speak different languages. So I think, I hope they stick to that, because that yeah. seems like a movie that I
0: would watch the hell out of. Also, like, I hope that it's not... Uh, Yeah, I hope that they actually can include something like that without breezing over it for the sake of making it more palatable. Because I feel like we have found that mainstream audiences are actually pretty open to getting really granular and philosophical in movies. And I think people have this preconceived notion that people will not be interested or be bored by something like that. But I think something like Ex Machina, which is like, you know, it's I mean, obviously, it's still an entertaining, you know, Hollywood thriller, but... It goes deeper than a lot of other films, I think, would about, you know, the nature of artificial intelligence and stuff like that and like very yeah. you know high level philosophical questions. And so well, I, think,
1: I, I also think this is relatively easy, uh, a lot easier, actually, than most things to film, because the way that it's been discussed most often has to do with color and color perception mm-hmm. um, and the ways that different languages categorize color and the way that speakers like figure things out that way. Oh, that's cool. Um, so, you know, that, that, that seems like something that would be eminently film, filmable, right? Yeah. Like talking about like the different ways that, that we understand color. Like, for instance, the wine dark sea is a sort of a classical example. And, and then, you know, uh, what does wine dark mean? Hmm. <laughs> because I, we think of wine as being, you know, right. like dark red or like maybe white. And uh, rather than being like a tone, or or any of a variety of other ways that that language could have been using to describe based on the sort of the way that the ancient Greeks were using the language. So I think there's probably room to do something really cool there, so I'm excited about it.
0: Yeah, well, that's um, coming out a little, uh, I think, in uh, a couple months, but we're going to get to see it early, hopefully, because uh, The Verge is going to Toronto, the film fest. Woo! So it'll be fun. Um, it's premiering there. And and while um, I'm on the subject of film and The Verge on film, um, everybody, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Tasha Robinson's story on Leica Studios. They've got a new film coming out this Friday like a Studios is the studio behind stop motion animation films like Coraline and Paranorman uh, they're an interesting little company and she went with our video team uh, last month and kind of saw behind the scenes you know there's just like a warehouse where they just build puppets and make little clothes and stuff it sounds pretty awesome that does um, sound awesome yeah and there's a video the video is pretty, um, pretty great too so so uh, please go check that out at theverge.com so I guess while we're still on the subject of film and film festivals to a lesser degree, a story came out this week that I found myself incredibly absorbed in and kind of unable to stop thinking about. There was, there's a film called Birth of a Nation. Obviously, there's an older film called The Birth of a Nation, but this is a new film by a director and actor named Nate Parker. Uh, It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this year to a huge anticipation and a very, very enthusiastic response. And the biggest deal, um, the biggest purchase in Sundance history out of the film festival. A uh, Fox searchlight bought it for, I think, $17.4 million. So it was a new record. The film is about Nat Turner. Um, Nat Turner is, the, of course, the slave who rebelled. Um, he was famously a literate slave who rebelled, led a rebellion, and went from plantation to plantation, killing the masters. And this has kind of always been one of these stories, I think, that's been seen as something that Hollywood would never take on. You know, there's plenty of slave narratives in Hollywood, but this seemed like something that was maybe a little too too hot for for Hollywood. But uh but this was Nate Parker's passion project. He raised money for it for uh 7 years, I think, and he wanted he wanted to direct it, he wanted to play Nat Turner in it, and he did that. And and obviously to huge acclaim when it came out. I have not seen the film. I can't really speak to it. I've actually heard mixed things. But overall, that doesn't really matter. Like, that's critics talking. I think right. the mood. There's it, an overall narrative of yes. what the film is. Yeah. The mood around it was, well, we can, I, I want to get into context a little bit later. Um, just kind of talk about what happened. So it's, it's scheduled for a proper release in October, you know, right in the middle of Oscar season. Fox Searchlight is known for getting films into the running for Oscars. So this was obviously kind of the plan from the get-go. And um, in this sort of promo schedule, kind of running up to the, the release, it started to come out just by nature of Nate Parker being a more public figure now. I mean, he had been in some films, but by far this is the, the, the biggest, most high-profile thing he's done. He, it came out that he had been involved in a rape case When he was at Penn State in 1999, he and a friend of his were involved in a gang rape. His friend, Jean Celestin or Jean Celestin, was found guilty and uh, Parker himself was acquitted. on the basis that he had had prior consensual sexual contact with the victim. So that's very that's a matter of public record. This isn't anything that anybody had to dig up. It's is on his Wikipedia page. But this started to get a little more traction in social media. People started to you know ask questions. And so Fox Searchlight and him, I imagine, decided to get out in front of it and give an interview to Deadline where they just addressed it but it was sort of the worst interview you could possibly do to diffuse something like this. Um, he, ba- yeah. If there's a handbook for how you talk about being accused of rape, I think he pretty much violated every tip, every pro tip. Um, not that there should be pro tips about such things. Um, you know, very much talking about something that happened to him. We saw this in the um, the case a little while ago. The swimmer, Brock, Brock Turner, was that his name? I think I- that was his yeah. name. Yeah, the swimmer out of... Um, was it Stanford? Yeah. 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 This language, and I understand that it's partially for defensive legal reasons, but it's just in the context of a interview being given by an artist to a trade magazine, talking about a rape case as something terrible that happened to you when you were the accused is not a great look. To bring out your daughters, to actually physically bring one of your daughters to the interview as a prop to demonstrate how you are not that person anymore is also not a great look It's just, yeah, I I just I want to be real about this
1: for any listeners who don't know this already. You know, men have had mothers and sisters (laughs) and daughters for literally all of human history. And it hasn't stopped y'all from raping us. All right. Like that is that is not an excuse. It's not like I love women. I have a mom. Like I have a mom. (laughs) Every rapist has a mom. Okay, let's just shut that down right now.
0: Um, please make the bumper sticker that says every rapist has a mom because, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, and this isn't the first time that. Nate Parker has kind of raised some eyebrows with comments he's made in the press. When he was in, uh, he was in Beyond the Lights, which came out a couple of years ago, and um, gave an interview. I can't remember now, maybe to Ebony. I'm not sure. Um, I probably totally misattributed that. But where he said that you know he was he was strongly against ever playing a gay man in a movie because he didn't want to compromise the the integrity of the black male. Oh, that's um, fucking rich. Yeah. So, um, you know, I I think it really it it caused a lot of re-examination of this film that most people have not seen like we should be clear it had a couple screenings at Sundance and the people who have seen it are in the the are a microscopic fraction of the people who are talking about this movie and care about this movie but it then later that day that same day that all this started bubbling up it came out that the his accuser had actually committed suicide in 2012 which just it's just it's just horrible. It's just a horrible sad story with like very little very little positive that you could possibly bring out of it. I you know, especially given his comments. I don't feel I I, I like to think of myself as somebody who could see somebody who's changed or made a really big effort to change if they were a shithead in college. I I would like to think I was open to that. But I think the language that he used in talking to the press is a little bit... It's just hard. It's hard to see that. It's really hard to see that. But I don't know. I'm less concerned about re-examining this case, which, you know... (laughs) For better or for worse, it's closed, and he was found not guilty um, legally. But I'm a little less interested in that and also this ongoing debate about separating the art from the artist, which we yeah. we talk about any time we talk about Woody Allen or Roman Polanski or any of these people, than I am just about how nate parker came to be in the position that he's in i mean i think there's
1: a there's a an answer to that that's that's pretty clear which is that we we talk about representation and we point to you know like one or two successful people who belong to groups that are underrepresented and we're like look we've got representation now and that's not the same as creating place where a lot of people can succeed and so you know even without sort of like the narrative of a slave rebellion being produced by a black man like even if he had been just making a film about like i don't know a comedy about people who were um living in new york city i don't know yeah or Um, a sci-fi movie about a linguist sure yes because there aren't very many black auteurs you you wind up taking on all of this sort of symbolic weight whether you want it or not and so then what ends up happening is that a conversation that we've had multiple times times about multiple filmmakers becomes much more difficult and much more complex because, you know, this person was sort of anointed as a representation of diversity. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, if I we mean, had can a lot you, it, more... <laughs> Black filmmakers, Sorry. if we had a lot more people who are out there, they're making these these visions. Like, I don't think this, this would be quite as vexed a conversation.
0: Right. I mean, if I, I would challenge anybody right now to think of a film by a black director or director-writer or starring a pr- predominantly black cast that didn't have to do with either slavery or the civil rights movement and it's really hard to come up with something like the academy that's that's still largely the viable story that they can see going on to win awards if we're talking about a black film
1: and not just in in movies either i should say there's been there was a great piece that showed up in the new yorker about a number of black writers who are writing about american slavery right yeah like this is a, this is an ongoing thing of like what people are willing to
0: package for audiences yeah. and what they assume audiences want and what they assume people will understand from the pitch and I think I think that's the thing that I find the most frustrating about this not that I don't think that this is a really worthy story to tell and that I you know was encouraged by the fact that it was um, getting the attention it was getting Uh, that seemed really exciting to me but if you're talking about Sundance where everybody's seeing things for the first time Anybody, Anything could be the thing that people glom onto. There was already a narrative around this film before anybody saw a single frame of it because of the subject matter and because the director had been so vocal about wanting to be a change agent in Hollywood. And that alone got it to this position where, like, I bet you some of the people out there, like, making bids for it hadn't hadn't seen the screening. hadn't got, I mean, I didn't see the screening because it was sold out times a million. But I, I think that I think it almost didn't matter. And he wasn't the thing is that he wasn't the only filmmaker of color or female filmmaker there with a film that I feel like would be value vi- viable for award season, even in like the most narrow definition of what you think of as awards friendly material. Um, it's just that that was the one while at the same time the Academy is completely embroiled in in the, the Oscars so white kind of embarrassment really because of the the nominations that had just come out that were, were once again like incredibly undiverse. And that's at the same time that's when the Academy was starting its campaign to uh, kind of clear out its membership and and take away membership from some of the people who hadn't made anything in a while and some of these older Academy members that were maybe holding back the kind of films that got considered and bringing in a lot of younger, more diverse people into the Academy. So this is a real thing that was happening. So it wasn't just like, oh, we should get a film into consideration by a Black director because it'll look good. It's like, no, if you don't, you probably will get passed over. Like, this new class of Academy inductees Will probably be more favorable towards you know Birth of a Nation than um, I don't know Florence Foster Jenkins or whatever. Um, <laughs> so it, it was a very real thing, that, and it, there was it was very dramatic. There was a lot of upheaval, and there was this like frenzy of like we gotta get the thing, we gotta get the thing that'll take us to Oscar land. And I think that there was maybe some less careful vetting. <laughs> Because I'm telling you, this is like politics. Like the, the person that you're going to champion is your Oscar hero. They, those people get vetted. And I don't think that Nate Parker was vetted or if he was, people assumed that nobody would care about this rape case. And that's extra depressing to me. That's like almost that's like depressing on an institutional level, not depressing on a I, I, I have, unfortunately, not a hard time believing that a man in 1999 who was an athlete at a university would do something like this to a woman. Like, I, it, you know, f- unfortunately, it does not bigger belief. Wasn't he also at Penn State? Yes. Which has same a history time,
1: of covering up sexual yeah. misconduct by athletes
0: and people who are on their coaching staff? Yes. No, yeah. It was at the very same time as the Paterno thing, too. It was like, hmm. so, yeah, it's just, it, it very much gives you a slice of a mentality that, un- you know, this is 17 years later. And that's like kind of has been his argument. It's like, this is the past. I'm past it now, which is kind of rich coming from somebody who wants to do this big epic about slavery. You know, all oppression is oppression. And when he goes and is going to do like a college speaking tour, like he legitimately, this was a part of Fox Searchlight's plan to have him tour colleges and talk about oppression, like campuses, like, oh, my God, like, like, the balls seriously it's just it's just i think the whole thing is unfortunate i don't even 100 percent blame him for the position he's in it's just a complete institutional blindness that is still you know it hasn't worked itself out and it wouldn't have worked itself out even if he had been on the up and up and birth of a nation won an oscar that wouldn't fix anything either so yeah anyway Anyway, the whole situation is incredibly sad any way you look at it. There's right. like no,
1: I, I at least for me, it's one of the reasons that I haven't been following it as closely is because every
0: single development is just sadder than the, the last one. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, like for anybody who cares to go and dig into the case documents, it's it's really like I I don't use this term lightly because a lot of times I don't personally believe in it for myself. Uh, but it is like trigger warning Uh territory for sure it is incredibly sad what happened to this woman Um, so yeah anyway the Oscars they continue to be a work in progress (laughs) but hopefully we'll see some good things this fall Uh, it is premiering at Toronto along with many other films that should be in consideration so hopefully we can focus on some stuff that um, is by people who don't get accused of raping people (laughs)
1: So we've talked a little bit uh, here about the microbiome, which are, you know, the, the creatures that live in and around us. Like your gut bacteria, the stuff that's on your skin, it's on your genitalia. To be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, it's just everywhere. The microbiome, um, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. There's been sort of a lot of hype around this, this this area where we don't really know the science very well, particularly when it comes to, to humans. You know, you have things like... Um, probiotics that are that are being sold and you've got you know people talking about like you know the hygiene hypothesis and and how we're too clean and and you know
0: wait um, are you telling me that probiotics aren't real and aren't saving my life right now uh, I I'm really sorry Emily (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I love probiotics. I love anything that says it's probiotic. I like, I buy it.
1: <laughs> well, listen, I love, I love fermented food. Um, yes. You know, I just, I think it's tasty and I eat it anyway. But like, you know, the, 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 the a lot of the um, bacteria in there isn't bacteria that's going to stick around in your body necessarily. Okay. Just FYI. Um, and actually, Ed will talk about this a, a little bit because I, I have a guest um, who I have just clumsily introduced, um, Ed Young. <laughs> he is a science writer for The Atlantic. He has just published a book called I Contain Multitudes. It mm-hmm. is about all
0: of the things that live in and on us. <laughs> so so how does this relate to this? Because the Verge faithful surely have rich in their memory a feature by our... Dearly departed, not not from this earth, but from the verge. Uh, writer uh, Ariel Duim Ross, who's remember. going to
1: be making a debut uh, debut on HBO uh, in September, and hey. you should watch her.
0: But yes, yeah, she did a big story on this guy who's trying to hack his micro or his yeah his microbiome by. I don't, yeah, by some very um, colorful means. Yeah. Well, so, one
1: of the things that that Ed says in conversation is that he started with humans and then realized so much was, it was so early and so much was speculative that he ran the risk of writing a book that would be outdated and wrong in ten years. Huh, okay. So, he backed up to look at the entire animal kingdom, which actually gives you sort of a really interesting like, satellite level view of the terrain below. Like, it's not the same as like walking around and like, categorizing things and figuring out what, you know, the exact thing going on is, but you start to get like a sense of what generally the landscape is and so he he does this very nice thing where he's he's not like sort of this um, what should I say he's not you know hooray microbes will solve everything but uh-huh. he's not like boo you should nuke them all yeah um, he's like well you know you're an ecosystem and and, it, right. and when you deal with ecosystems things get really complex and so he uses all of these really wonderful examples from the animal kingdom and also from us to talk about the ways in which these kinds of bacteria interact interact. interact with their hosts
0: so this is just I I, I'm just kind of curious because it feels like something that we should have a pretty good handle on by now right I mean we're humans like we're right here everything is right in front of us we have microscopes like why is it so hard to figure out what this microbiome is like what what are the good elements and the bad elements
1: uh well I mean part of it was that you know when we realized that bacteria cause disease we kind of thought that that was all they did for humans. Right. And
0: yeah. so it took
1: us a little while to sort of step away from that and realize that like, no, no, there are other more complex interactions happening here. And then, and, and, you know, I mean, like that's still that's that 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 view is not gone. I mean, like you can go to any grocery store and, you know, antimicrobial hand sanitizer and all of this other stuff is like it's on sale and you could really just use regular soap and water and be just fine.
0: Or you could use it as mouthwash. Go take it one <laughs> step further. Gargle <laughs> with Purell. <laughs>
1: oh, I cannot recommend that on any level.
0: No, I so so you know, I
1: mean, this kind of like way of, of viewing it as an ecosystem is 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 something that is um, a little bit new, not a lot new actually. Um, I'm gonna totally butcher this guy's name, which is a recurring theme on The Verge, but Anton von Leeuwenhoek, I think it's pronounced. Okay, um, the, the the guy who first saw bacteria. Mm-hmm. Didn't actually think it was bad and like scraped some off his teeth and was like, oh my god, that's living on me. That's awesome. You know, and then. <laughs> And then we kind of forgot about this early view um, once we realized that, that bacteria can also cause disease. Yeah, and, and so in some sense, what's happening is kind of a resurgence of the understanding that, in fact, we, we are ecosystems ourselves. Uh, and so Ed really provides this nice guidebook through it with all of these sort of engaging examples. He's an animal person, so he writes a lot about the animal world and about the interesting animal bacteria interactions that you see across the, the major kingdoms, uh, from sea worms to, to us. So uh, I think without further ado, I think we should just let him speak for himself. Great. Can't wait to hear it. So I'm here with Ed Yong, who is a science writer I've known online for quite some time and whose work I've admired a lot. And he's recently written a book. It's called I Contain Multitudes. And it's about all of the bacteria that live on our bodies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you know, not just our bodies, I suppose. A lot of it is other, other animals' bodies as well. Um, That's but right, Ed, I wanted all to, bodies. All <laughs> bodies. The, the, everybody contains multitudes, it turns out. So, Ed, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about sort of the genesis of the book before we get to its contents, because I know you've written very gleefully about sort of all of the gross stuff that lives on and around us for quite some time. And I was curious mm-hmm. to know how it, it translated into becoming this book.
2: Right. Um, I, I've been reporting on this for about ten years now. Um, pretty much as soon as I started science writing, and um, it's it's one of the areas of, of biology that interests me most. I just think it's so it's so fascinating. It really changes the way you look at the world around you. You start seeing that um, individuals are not, in fact, just individuals. They are entire worlds. They are collectives. They are they are colonies and And in fact, um, you see that the microbes that share our lives are not just stowaways or or passengers. They are profoundly important. They help shape the way we live, the way we evolve, um, and the way we develop. And all all of that has been bubbling away in my head for these 10 years, and I was... um, I I I don't know I I was actually contemplating writing a book about the human microbiome for a while, but um, Realized that this area of science is still very much in its infancy and any book that really looked at that would would be Would end up being I think very much about health and diet and, and would be quite Speculative because we're only sort of starting to probe into this very complex world and We still have a lot more questions than answers but I thought that um one way of getting around that would be to ground all of those human stories among everything that we know about the microbiomes of other animals because there's so much they can teach us and there's so much that scientists have uncovered about them. So things like aphids and cows and deep sea worms. If we looked at the way animals form partnerships with microbes throughout our entire kingdom, then we can see um, the great themes that then apply to the human microbiome and and I, can, I, I could then pick only the best Um, and most interesting stories from this very emerging area of science to tell.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that was really striking, actually, was that if you look at any one species, we're still sort of fumbling around in the dark, but if you look at... Mm-hmm. you know, all of these possible examples, you start to begin to see a, a, a map almost. Is that a, is that a good way of putting it?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think you, you start seeing, they, they're all pieces of a puzzle and you start seeing themes that run throughout all of them. So the, the book is organized according to those themes. So I've got a chapter, for example, on how microbes shape the bodies of animals, how they, they sculpt our development from a single egg to an adult. And there we have stories Ranging from worms in the ocean to hyenas to mice to people, and you you see loads of stories of uh, microbes and their hosts competing, having conflicts with each other, and how the hosts then stabilise um, those conflicts. That's the that's the theme of a chapter. And again, we have everything from babies to, to insects. And I think by, by doing that, I'm hoping to give people a really good grounding um, into this area of science so they can use to to pass and to, to look at all the discoveries that are going to happen and they're going to come out over the next many decades.
1: One of the things that I thought was really interesting was the way that you described sort of the conflict between partners in in these kinds of relationships, right? Because you know, it's not it's not a perfectly rosy, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, you know, kind of a thing. It's there's, there is there is there is a little bit of, of shuffling for position and and jockeying to to you know sort of contain the microbes or to alter the host. Um, and so I wanted to talk with with you about two of those things. Uh, one of which I know is your favorite bacteria. <laughs> Um <laughs> right. uh, and uh, and and the way that it, it, it shapes its hopes, hosts to suit itself across several different species and the, the, the bacteria I'm talking about, and I'm gonna totally butcher the pronunciation I'm sure is Wolbachia. yeah
2: that's that's it um, yeah so, so I, I wanted to get across this idea that there is no such thing as a good or, or a bad microbe this area of science because it's so heavily in um, heavily inundated with the ideas of partnerships and cooperations and alliances um, lends itself to a an almost like happy-clappy view of the world, like oh, everything living in harmony and working together. But, of course, nature is more complicated than that, and um, every partnership you see in the natural world um, is tinged with conflict when the, the partners, even though some of their interests align, are never fully in, in alignment. And... Um, there are many cases in which microbes can play positive roles for some hosts and negative roles in others. Um, and Wolbachia is a good example of that. So, this is a very, very common species that, um, or actually a group of Probably many different species. Um, it's it's very common. It infects something like forty percent of insect species and species of other arthropods, which are themselves the most the you know the richest and most numerous groups of animals in the world. And what Wolbachia does varies from host to host. So in some, it's a very clear parasite. It Harms males in particular because it only passes down the female line. Um, and so, in some cases, it turns males into females, sometimes it kills males outright. But in some other hosts, Borbacci well, is a very positive influence. It um, provides bed bugs, for example, with, um, with nutrients. It acts as a sort of living dietary supplement, and it also uh, it also allows some caterpillars that feed on leaves to stop the leaves from yellowing, to, to hold back the progress of fall so that the hosts can have more to eat for longer.
1: Right, this all sounds pretty good, except that then you remember that there are entire species where, you know, it, it wipes out the males. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah right exactly so so that you know that, that's a very good example of uh of uh, a microbe that has these sort of Jekyll and Hyde faces depending on the host it finds itself in um but then there are others too where Um, the same microbe in the same host can be both hero and villain so um, the, the stomach bacterium helicobacter pylori which infects us can for example cause stomach ulcers and stomach cancer but its presence has also been linked to a lower risk of esophageal cancer and it is in the same strains that provide both of those benefits and costs
1: Right. I mean, it's, it's, that's one of the more interesting stories, I think, of, of the 20th century was the, the drop in stomach cancer and the <laughs> concordant rise in esophageal cancer. I mean, those two things, it's, it's like you can't separate them. You, you also wrote really interestingly about human breast milk, and we te- which we mm. tend to think of as being some, for something to, to feed babies, right? But it's not just babies that are getting fed by breast milk is it's, um, one of the interesting things that you sort of propose Or maybe not "propose" is the right word. Record in the book that there's a possibility that that parts of breast milk are meant specifically for bacterial colonies in the baby. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, So about ten percent of milk, uh, human milk, contain uh, consists of these complex sugars that uh, babies cannot in fact digest Um, those sugars are there to nourish the microbes in the baby's gut and there are some species uh, and some particular strains one called B. infantis that is exceptionally good at digesting these sugars and um, in the guts of breastfed babies it rises to dominance and it in turn benefits the baby it helps to feed its gut cells it seals the lining of the gut it reduces inflammation and and so by feeding that by, by breastfeeding, a mother is not just nourishing her infant, she's also nourishing B. infantis, which is in turn benefiting the child. Um, so this is a, a great example of the ways in which um, hosts can select for the right microbes can contain their multitudes um, by by offering them the right food and in this case that food is milk it's a way for a mother to sculpt the first ecosystems inside um, her baby's body
1: I mean that's that's a a relatively common strategy, I think, is aiming for some kind of control or containment of your bacterial partners. You know, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, specific cells that have been designed for them to live in that where they have like these little pockets, basically, in certain species, yeah. or or providing certain kinds of food. That seems like a very good strategy for controlling the terms of the partnership.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You feed the the right microbes, um, and you you allow them to outcompete the wrong ones. Um, there are, as as you say, there are physical structures that can contain microbes too. So insects produce these cells called bacteriocytes that are just rammed with um, with with uh, microbial partners. There are. You know, in our guts, we keep microbes within the gut and prevent them from crossing crossing the lining of the gut and reaching the bloodstream beneath with, with a layer of mucus, a very thick wall that is also then patrolled by the immune system. And the immune system provides yet another way of controlling our multitudes, of selecting which species get to live with us and which do not.
1: Yeah, you actually had a really wonderful passage on how useful mucus is that I um, hadn't ever quite seen framed that way before, um, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, about how it's sort of, like, part of what's going on is that there are, of course, viruses running around, and most viruses actually don't target humans. They're, they're, they're sort of indifferent to us. They, they seem to like bacteria, though, and uh, part of what's going on with mucus is that we are basically holding the bacteria still so that either, you know, our, um, our immune system can get to them, or potentially these viruses can as well. Am I, am I, am I reproducing this fairly? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's basically it. So these viruses are, are called bacteriophages, or just simply phages, and they um, they hunt and kill bacteria. We are, the mucus in our gut is full of phages, and they seem to bind to the mucus themselves. So they a phage looks like um, a bit like the lunar lander that, that ended up on the moon. It's got this kind of um, a complex dome with a long stem beneath it and these spindly legs, and the Almost attaches to the mucus, so so the virus is sort of reach, almost reaching out into the gut with its legs, and when bacteria land there, it it then infects those microbes. Um, so yeah, these these viruses you can almost think of them as part of our immune system. They help to control the microbes that live with us, and we we have created an environment in which they can thrive and they can find their prey um, by by creating this physical barrier of mucus um, along our guts.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, again, a little bit of a... a, a Again, it's a partnership, sure. We've created this area where the, the bacteria can live, but we also have, have put these very strict guidelines and and, and, and borders on it. <laughs> and the mucus is part of it. Yeah, that. yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, very much so. It just shows that um, the bacteria that we have in our guts, even though we think of them as partners, you know, they help to digest our food and train our immune systems, they need to be in the right place. If they get into the wrong place, they can cause inflammation and a lot of other problems. So we, we need to keep... Them them in check they are not inherently our allies they are that way because we contain them we control them
1: right because they're they're part of what digest us basically after we're dead right like they, the the barriers stop working after we die and then they sort of are part of the the whole process of of rotting
2: yeah, and um, there's actually a lot of work on what happens to the microbiome after people die. Like, what you know, wh- which um, which species turn up when? There's there's a lot of work on whether you can actually use the bacterial communities on a dead body to time um, to work out the time of death to use it as a forensic tool. It, it's something that I like to call the necrobiome, um, and <laughs> it looks like it it could be um, actually actually very. Very useful for forensic purposes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a bit different of a view than sort of the cheerier probiotic version that we're sort of getting accustomed to from marketing, (laughs) among other places. Yeah, that's
2: right. Yeah, the Um, friendly bacteria, right. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know uh, the the case in point I think is is usually yogurt. I, I remember sort of near the beginning of my career there was there was a bunch of stuff coming out. I think Danone Group Danone had um, done experiments on their patented yogurt bacteria, mm-hmm. and you know regularity. And there's been a, of course you know a bunch of sort of questions about it. But one of the things that I think is really interesting that that you point out is that there are, there are a couple of ways where trying to treat humans with bacteria in order to to get us to you know our, our ecosystems to change in ways we want it to change can go wrong and with yogurt obviously the you know the the species that are in yogurt don't necessarily stay in our gut that long is that is that right
2: yes that's right yeah yeah they're not particularly suited for life in the gut they are not the like the a-listers of the gut um they were chosen for historical reasons because they were easy to manufacture or to package and they are also they also tend to be um you know strains that have been grown in in industrial cultures for a very long time and then they're packaged in products where they, they they're sort of presented small quantities so when you when you swallow them you're ingesting only a tiny number of microbes compared to the vast communities that live in your gut and you know they're not incredibly well suited to life there so they don't seem to to take hold Um, they may have temporary effects but they're not going to start up new colonies inside you
1: Right. And I mean, even when the bacteria are bacteria that are well suited to us, there, there are ways that that can go wrong. You, you cited a really interesting example a little bit after the, the sort of the section on, on probiotic yogurt of, of trying to, to treat illnesses. I think it was kidney stones by, mm-hmm. by putting more bacteria in the gut. Do you, do you want to explain that?
2: Yeah, so this is a uh, a species called Oxalobacter, which um, breaks down a substance called oxalate, which has been linked to to kidney stones. But you know, often when one of the um, scientists I, I spoke to um, told me that these these products aren't very good, and it might be because um, people who have kidney stones are often told to avoid foods with oxalate. Now, if you then give them bacteria that. I break down this stuff. There's nothing for those microbes to eat. Um, So I think we need to realize that what we're really, what we're doing when we think about probiotics or or any kind of microbiome based therapy, We're dealing with living things, and we're dealing often with large communities of living things that then get chucked into a vast ecosystem inside us, where there are competitors, uh, rivals, where they have to deal with the host immune system, where they need to find food. And it's not as simple as a lot of other areas of medicine. Like, you know, people treat these things as if they were, say, vitamin deficiencies. You know, you uh, you find that someone has a lack of something, and you give them the thing, and you hope they get better. It's, it's not like that. It's more like trying to, to change an entire world, like to, to manage a rainforest or, or a, um, a coral reef or something of that order of magnitude of complexity. And it's no wonder that our attempts at doing that have been a little clumsy and basic. You know, we need to think about if you're introducing microbes into our bodies How are they going to interact with those that are already inside there? Are they going to cooperate or compete? Will they find food? If not, do we need to feed them? Do we need to ingest prebiotics or, or products that uh, will nourish those specific bacteria? Um, you know What quantities are, are we ingesting them in? All these questions are, are very ecological questions. They're questions that people who work in large-scale ecosystems are very used to thinking about. But I think because the human microbiome is still is such, such an early state of investigation, and because a lot of people are coming into it from a very clinical background, they're not used to thinking about these ecological complexities.
1: Yeah, it's, it's in some sense, we're, we're kind of trying to landscape a rainforest, right?
2: Right. Yeah, very much so. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, with all the complexity that that entails. <laughs>
1: And it makes sense. So wh- what was what was the thing in the book that was either the most fun to report on or most surprising to you? was there was there one thing that really stands out when you when you look back at all of the work that went into this and in all ten years of reporting?
2: Wow, um, so yeah, th- there were. There were loads that I enjoyed writing about, um, and and often they were stories that weren't necessarily about people. There were stories that in in other animals where people have made uh, incredible discoveries. So, for example, there's this um, there's this insect called the citrus mealybug, which is um, this white. Um, it almost looks like a like a walking dandruff, like. And it has bacteria inside its cells that provide it with nutrients that are missing from its food, just like a lot of other sap-sucking bugs like aphids and cicadas and the like. But those bacteria then have more bacteria inside, there, inside them. So this is an insect that contains microbes, which also then contain microbes. It's like a, a living Russian doll. And the incredible thing is that the all three partners – Um, cooperate to make certain nutrients that they all depend upon. So to make um, some amino acids, the building blocks of proteins, you need like this production line of enzymes. So if you imagine like a, a production line snaking through a factory, like one machine does this bit, another adds on this bit and so on. Those machines, those enzymes along the production line are made by each of the three partners. So the insect makes some, the outer bacterium makes some, the inner bacterium makes more. And all three of them work together to create the nutrients that all three of them depend on. And that degree of intimacy is is astonishing to me. Like how something like that evolves, how utterly and intimately the three partners depend on each other, I think is, is just a, a wonderful example of the, the partnerships that of that you can see in the animal world
1: Alright, well Ed, I want to thank you very much for taking the time, I really really appreciate it. No, thanks for having uh, me I hope I haven't asked you too many questions that you've, you've heard before
2: <laughs> No, it's great, uh, I, I actually really enjoyed that, the, um, we, we got to talk about um, slightly different things than what I've been asked before, I've not talked, uh, not talked about the mealy bug for a while so yeah, that's, that's, uh, it has been really good fun, thank you so much for the interest <laughs> in the book and for, for having me on your show
1: All right. Take care.
2: All right. Thanks. Bye.
1: That was Ed Yong with The Atlantic, um, who has a new book out. I contain multitudes. I liked it a lot. If you are interested in rip-roaring tales of scientific weirdness, I highly recommend picking it up. And that's going to do it for us today, I think.
0: Yes, that, <laughs> that does it for us. Uh, so as always, uh, if you have not, please subscribe to us on iTunes. We have Verge ESP there. And you can also find us on Spotify. Just make sure you're on your phone, on your mobile device. We're also on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Verge ESP. And you can tweet at us. I am at Emily Yoshida. And Liz is at Ms. Lopado. And please leave us a review wherever you happen to find us. We do love your feedback. So have a great week, everybody. We'll see All you right. next week. Bye. Bye.